Good morning, everyone. It's good to be uh, back with you. Um, I got a lot of jokes as I came in this morning uh, from Noah, especially saying, oh, you still exist. Um, My (laughs) wife and I and our two pups were, um, took a road trip out west for two weeks and enjoyed the beauty of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. And now it is 100 million degrees here in Pennsylvania. And uh, so welcome home, I guess. Um, No, seriously, though, it's good to be back with you. Uh, I'm I'm excited to be here and to get the chance to preach the word to you uh, this morning. Now, as I joked about, it has been stinking hot here this weekend in Pennsylvania, and um, it's reminded me that we are still in the middle of summer, even though it was 70 degrees in Colorado and wonderful. Uh, But summertime, like my wife and I just did, usually means for a lot of us traveling. Uh, Some of us go on vacations. Other of us go take road trips to see family that live in different places that we don't get to see a whole lot throughout the year. And for those of you who travel, uh, who have kids and travel, uh, this might conjure up many different emotions within you. So for some of you, it might conjure up perfect pictures of bliss as you uh, travel through the countryside, see America's sights hand in hand with your whole family, and everyone is incredibly happy, and you have a good old-fashioned family vacation. For others of you, it might conjure up feelings of terror and dread and sorrow and uh, maybe, as the Bible says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I know that there's one question that those of you, no matter how good or bad your family vacations are with kids, I know all of you who have kids hear this question from the back seat a million times as you're going wherever you're going, and you dread it for every single time it comes. Are we there yet? And it happens uh, inevitably time and time and time again. And your answer the same, is the same every single time. No, obviously we're not there yet. We're still driving. And, uh, and we'll never be there, it feels like, especially if you keep asking me that question. But in the passage this morning, uh, the Apostle Paul, like you as good parents, uh, is going to tell the truth to his spiritual children here in Thessalonica. And the church in Thessalonica, he's going to say, is a church that has not arrived yet. It's a church that, although they are a good church, a church that has not reached perfection in their pilgrimage in this life towards Christian holiness and love. But what he will encourage them with is that Christ's will for them in the midst of this is to grow more and more in holiness. And that in this life, they can, and if they continue to follow Jesus, will grow in more and more holiness every step of the way until they meet Jesus face to face. And so if you have your Bible this morning, would you open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me? And we're going to be continuing our summer slash early fall uh, series through the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We'll be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. Um, And if you don't have a Bible or Bible app on your phone, there's uh, Bibles there in the back of the pews, so you can feel free to grab. And um, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. We would love for you to be able to read God's Word on your own if you don't have one and are interested. So here we go. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to him for it. Would you join me in prayer as we ask God to open up his word for us this morning? Father, we confess together as a church the truths that we sang earlier, that you are holy, even though the darkness of our sinful eyes hides the truth of who you are from us. You are a holy God, and Lord, you have spoken clearly to us in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open it up this morning, that you would reveal its truths to us by your spirit, and that you would show us the ways in which we as a church need to abound more and more in holiness and love. Lord, use your word to make us more and more like Jesus this morning. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, whenever we approach a particular Bible passage, uh, there's a certain gap that we always face that we have to cross in order to begin to come to right understanding of that Bible passage. And one barrier that confronts us every single time we open our Bible to whether it's Genesis or all the way, whether it's Revelation, one barrier that is consistently in front of us is the fact that we live in America in the 21st century, and these books were written in uh, many centuries uh, before and after the coming of Christ, uh, the youngest being 2,000 years ago. It's a very different time, a very different culture. Uh, we were not able, are not able to walk the streets of Thessalonica or Jerusalem, at least not the same Jerusalem and Thessalonica that the people of the first century would have known. And I think most times when we come to the Bible, we often overestimate the similarity between us and the original readers, and that causes us to miss things in reading and skip over things that we probably shouldn't because they're really important. But with all that said, I think 1 Thessalonians as a book and chapter 4 here that we're looking at this morning, I think this bears incredible similarity to our current situation, that we don't have to cross that large of a cultural gap in order to understand and apply this passage. I think in a lot of ways, it pops off the page at us as Community Evangelical Free Church in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in a number of ways. So let me show you what what I mean by this. So this church in Thessalonica was not a church that had any radical problems. There there was no problems that were threatening to tear the church apart or anything like that. We read in verses 1 and 2 of the passage we're looking at this morning that this is a church that 
heard the apostles' commands, and they did them. They were delighted to follow God's commands as given under the apostles. And uh, it actually makes the radical claim in verse 1 that when this church did these commands, God was pleased with them. This was also a church whose love for other churches, particularly those in Macedonia, was well known among the apostles, how well this church extended love to that other church. This was a church who, in in chapter 3, in the text that Benjamin brought before us last week, a church whose good works were literally good gospel news to the apostle Paul when he heard about it. This is a church by all intent and purposes that was, we consider a healthy church. But we know, those of you who have read the New Testament anyway, or even parts of it, that this was not every church that was written to, uh, specifically not that the Apostle Paul wrote to. So let's consider this letter in comparison with the letter to the Galatians. So uh, Paul doesn't really exchange pleasantries. Uh, He gives his formal introduction, and then in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, and then we're also going to read a little bit of verse 9, he says this. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. A little bit different of a situation than what we have here in Thessalonians, right? In, one, in Thessalonians, in chapter 1, Paul is essentially saying, hey, I love you guys. You guys are really great, and the Spirit's doing an amazing work among you. And I've even commended you as examples to other churches to follow. Galatians, he's like, hey, I'm not even sure you guys believe the gospel anymore. This is urgent. We need to talk. Right? It's a very different situation. And even here in chapter 4 is the first time that Paul brings up the Thessalonians' conduct, their behavior. And even here, he doesn't have severe corrections or alterations to give to them. He says, you guys, in verse 1, he says, you are doing the commands that were passed down to you. But his encouragement is for them to abound in those commands. And in this way, not to toot our own horns or anything, but I think to honestly assess the situation, the church at Thessalonica in many ways is like our church here. There are no problems, at least on the surface that I'm aware of, that are threatening to tear this church apart. Maybe you could correct me, but I don't think that's the case. God in recent years has blessed this church with a unity and with a love that I see demonstrated in a week-in, week-out basis. Uh, You all delight to do God's commands and to love one another. And that's a good thing. It shows that God's spirit is at work here. Uh, Some of you have been faithfully following Jesus for 40 and 50 years and loving his people and following what God has commanded. But even with this being true, even with a healthy church in Thessalonica and a healthy church here in Harrisburg, notice what Paul does. He doesn't pat them on the back. He doesn't say, good job, you guys have finally arrived, welcome. He prays for them at the end of chapter 3 and then directs them in this passage to grow more and more in Christian love and holiness. Paul urges them to not be complacent. And this theme of more and more is what comes out as we we read uh, the main 
kind of theme verses for this passage. So it's said in verse 1 and then repeated again in verse 10. So uh, it's going to be on the screen side or right next to each other. So we'll read verse 1 and the uh, part of verse 10 here. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then in verse 10 he says, But we urge you, brothers, to love one another, it's the context from verse 9, more and more. And Paul knows that this church, though it is healthy, has not reached perfection. And it never will this side of seeing Jesus face to face. Community. No matter how healthy this church may be, and no matter how healthy its individual members and families may be, we have not arrived. And I hope that this doesn't come as a surprise to you. It certainly doesn't come as a surprise to me. I've seen the way that I have contributed to our not arrival. <laughs> but this morning... God is calling us under his authority and by the power of the Spirit to continue to grow more and more in holiness and in love. And so I know there's no outline for you on the the insert in your bulletin, so let me give it to you. It's really simple. So the outline for this morning is more and more holiness. It's in verses 3 to 8. And then more and more love, verses 9 to 12. So more and more holiness, more and more love. So first, let's look at more and more holiness, uh, starting in verse 3. You have to love how clear the scriptures are on this point. Read with me the first few words of verse 3. I I love this. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This, This half verse right here could put an entire genre of Christian books out of business. Brothers and sisters, it is not a mystery what the will of God is for your life. God tells you straight up, the will of him, his will for you, is that you would be sanctified. Uh, that's a, sanctification is a Bible word that basically means to become more and more holy. Or to try to use less Bible words to become more and more set apart for God. And this sanctification or continual progress in holiness is God's will for you individually and for us as a church. So before we go anywhere else, let's just say this, pause. In a moment of incredible uncertainty, not uncertainty, but just we just don't know the future in our church. We don't know who we might hire as a pastor. We don't know how things are going to look in a year. Uh, We might, might say we don't know the will of God. We do know the will of God for our church. And that's that we would increase more and more in holiness. Amen? I could just close right there. (laughs) But I think we can go even further as far as this passage is concerned in in defining holiness. So if you look back at verses 1 and 2 and ask the question, how is it that we grow in holiness? I think the answer that, that the passage gives us is that we grow in holiness by following the commands of Jesus given by the apostles, and for us now who live in the church age, that are written down in the scriptures. So to put it simply, holiness, to grow in holiness, is to grow in true obedience. Okay, so I don't want to be overly simplistic. I don't want to say bare, raw obedience equals holiness, 
But true obedience equals holiness. Obedience that is born out of a heart that's captivated by God and what he has done for us in Christ. True obedience and growth in holiness are inseparable. They go together. But there's a specific, uh, we'll call it a subset of holiness that the Apostle Paul is concerned for the church in Thessalonica and for us to grasp and to bear fruit in. And that's in the area of sexuality. Although this is a general exhortation towards holiness, his real concern and the subset concern of his his exhortation to holiness is that the the church would grow in sexual holiness. And so I think it's right at this point to stop and ask, well, why? Why why is that what Paul chooses to zero in on here? Of all the sins that he could, uh, and all the ways that we could be holy, why does he zero in on sexuality? Well, for starters, uh, the the Greco-Roman world, the world of the first century, uh, was not one in which sexual chastity was a virtue. In that world, monogamy was not the norm. Uh, men were encouraged to use their wives for legitimate children and then to use mistresses to fulfill their sexual desires. And so I think sometimes as people in 21st century America, especially as Christians, we can kind of get this feeling of like the world's never been as bad as it is right now. Um, In terms of sexual ethics, the first century was at least comparable to where we are right now. It was not a very favorable environment, at least towards Christian sexual ethics. And in addition to this, much of the idol worship of the various cities of the first century world were tied up with prostitution and other sexual activities that didn't exalt the biblical definition of human sexuality as a marriage between a man and a woman. The word which Paul uses... Uh, which we translate as sexual immorality in verse 3, can generally mean any any type of sexual immorality. So it can be more of a general kind of junk drawer drawer term uh, defining any kind of sexual immorality. But it also can be used to describe sexual practices that were tied up in the worship of idols. So while I think Paul's exhortation here is generally towards to avoid sexual immorality, I think there's a specific sense in which he's speaking to the Thessalonians to avoid sexual practices related with their former life of idolatry. Because we read in chapter 1 verse 9 of Thessalonians that this church was tied up before they were converted to Christianity. They were tied up in the worship of idols. And this is why he says in verse 5 that not practicing self-control in sexual matters makes one like the Gentiles, a.k.a. like those who don't follow God, like those who are not a part of the people of God who worship idols. So the reason why Paul chooses to focus on sexual ethics of all the things he could have chosen is because sexual immorality was emblematic of the Thessalonians' former lifestyle as idol worshipers. So a Christian sexual ethic in the first century would have clearly drawn a line in the sand between those who followed Jesus and those who didn't follow Jesus. And if that doesn't sing to our world today, then I don't know what does. 
in our own context, if there is one thing that delineates the difference between those who worship Jesus and those who worship false gods, it is sexual ethics. And even in a church like our own, that appears on the outside to be healthy in so many ways, in the private of our own lives, in our own homes, in our own bedrooms, and our own computer screens and phone screens, who we truly choose to worship becomes apparent very quickly. And in an area where we can so easily, even subconsciously, be formed to the mold of our culture, I pray that we as a church would please God by bringing our lives more and more under his vision for sexual flourishing. And so I know this is a hard topic. And I know this is a hard topic to breach in community with one another. This is a topic that often we're told to, to kind of go it alone on. But I want to encourage you this morning that we don't have to fight for holiness in the area of sexual uh, ethics alone. We don't have to do that. We have one another. And so I would encourage you as a church, brothers, get with other brothers. Sisters, get with other sisters. And be honest with one another. Give buckets of grace to each other and encourage each other to pursue holiness in all of life, but specifically in this area where it is so important and where we today are so tempted to stray and become lackadaisical. And so us, I pray that we as a church would not treat this area lightly, but would fight by the grace of God, tooth and nail, to produce the fruit of the Spirit and holiness in this area and be conformed into the image of Christ. Before we move on, I want to stop and say one more thing, and I hope this comes as an encouragement to you. I don't know about you, but in the age in which we live, where it's safe to say that our, uh, what we hold as a Christian um, standard of sexual ethics is not popular, uh, it's not something that people, you'll hardly get an amen from, from the, the stranger on the street. I want to encourage you that if you're like me, you're probably tempted to altogether avoid these topics, or if you do choose to breach them with someone, uh, you're very hesitant about it, almost tiptoeing around it, treating these things as if they're not actually God's good news commands for our flourishing. But I want to encourage you that we have nothing to be ashamed of because what God has given us in his word is good for all people. We trust that God's commands are for our ultimate good and flourishing and for the flourishing of the whole world. And he's given them to us clearly so that we can know them, obey them, and be blessed in following them and so that we might please him. And if you're here this morning and you're somebody that says, well, that sounds like God is controlling. Like God's kind of in my business and wants to, you know, work out and dictate every single, the way I use my body, the way that I go about my life. I would just submit this to you. That if Two fathers have two, each have a son, and their sons are in imminent danger. And one son clearly spells out boundaries that protect his son from danger, and the other father doesn't and allows the son to do whatever he wants. Which father is more loving? 
Friends, God doesn't leave us on our own. He's clearly communicated to us his will for us and how we can please him in following his will and what will ultimately result for our good. But there may still be some of you who are here this morning who are trapped in the midst of sexual sin. Or maybe you're somebody in here this morning who struggles with same-sex attraction. And we acknowledge that these commands and following these commands in today's world is hard. It's hard. And the cost for you of following Jesus in our culture today is immensely difficult and requires incredible sacrifice. And it may not feel this morning like these commands are good news that will help you to flourish as a human being. And I wish I could tell you that things were going to get easier for you and that everything was going to be better, but I can't. I can't tell you that things will be better or easier for you on this earth as you wrestle through the area of your sexuality. But I can tell you this, is that Jesus loves you and he cares about your ultimate good. And these commands of the Bible on sexuality are for all of us. All of us who are broken sexually in need of a savior. And so what I want to invite us as a church to do this morning, as we hear the Bible's teaching on sexuality, I want to encourage us not to use these words to beat others over the head with the truth. But rather, I pray that we as a church would hear these words as an invitation to struggle together for holiness. All of us together. All of us whose sexualities are broken by the fall. And I pray that we together would extend grace and fight together for holiness as a church. And that we would together grow into the image of Christ. Because we all are in need of him. And these commands are for all of us. Well, that's uh, the first point, more and more holiness. Now let's move to the last four verses of our text and look at Paul's exhortation to more and more love. And much like his encouragement towards holiness, where he gives a general broad command and then gives a more specific command underneath it, uh, he's going to do the same thing here. So his basic command in verse 9 is to extend love to one another, and then he's going to give us a subset command underneath that to focus on. So let's read uh, the second half of verse 10 through verse 12 so we can have it um, fresh on our minds here. He says, But we urge you, brothers, to love one another more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I don't know about you, but these strike me as rather odd application points. Uh, I don't know when the last time any of us have heard an application of a sermon close and the pastor says, hey, work hard and mind your own business. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard that in a church before. It's strange to us. But that, that's what Paul is saying here. That's the exhortation that he, that he gives. Um, and much like his exhortation towards sexual holiness, this comes out of the context of the Thessalonian church. So for whatever reason, we don't exactly know why, but the Thessalonians were tempted towards laziness, towards not working hard and taking care of their own affairs. And so into this situation, Paul speaks of the beauty and dignity of hard work 
and of taking care of your own business. Now, as most of you know, uh, I received my undergraduate degree from a large Christian university, which will remain nameless. And I want to preface all this by saying, I have much respect for this university. I love it. I was formed into the image of Christ there, have many friends there, and I would recommend you to go there as well with, after you have a conversation with me about it. But, um, but <laughs> we're going to pick on him a little bit this morning. Uh, and so the motto for this university is training champions for Christ. Okay? Sounds good, right? Like, that sounds like something we should wholeheartedly affirm, right? It feels like we should affirm that. Um, and, and being there, I know that um, that kind of ethos of a school that does everything big and trains champions for Christ, uh, kind of as, as it got worked into me and some of the people who are my closest friends, it had a similar effect on us. And it, it, it created a mindset, at least for me and my friends, I'm not saying this is the experience of everyone, that in order to actually be following God's will, in order to actually be uh, obeying God as a Christian, that your life had to look awesome. That your Christian life had to be one of grand accomplishments and Instagram-worthy moments, and that you were going to have to be influencing somebody in the culture in some way uh, to do something awesome. But the more and more I kept following Jesus after college, I realized that uh, this came directly into conflict with what my life actually looked like. Uh, case in point, right after I graduated, I had my degree in my back pocket, but I couldn't find a job. And so I got a job working for $9 an hour at a Greek restaurant. And uh, um, it was just a moment of like, I, I kind of feel like a failure for Christ right now. Like, I, I don't know, don't really feel like a champion for Christ. But it was here, as I worked day in and day out at this Greek restaurant uh, for four or five months after I graduated from college, that I began to realize that much of the Christian life is not made up of awe-inspiring moments by the world's standards. The day in, day out of our lives as Christians is one of faithfulness in small things. Faithfulness in no matter how tired you are playing with your kids when you get home from work. Or faithfulness in working hard at your job or in sparking up conversations with your neighbor over the back fence or in church attendance and meeting together as a small group. See, the Spirit's work of transformation in our lives happens most often in the places that we would least expect it. And there is an unspeakable beauty and purpose in the boring, non-Instagrammable parts of our life as a Christian. But what does any of this have to do with loving one another? So that's what we're going to try to answer. So it's not on the screen. Um, Actually, I think Kevin put it up. Kevin, can you put that up for us? You put it up first service because you're the man and on top of it more than I am. Uh, So if you look on the screen with me or down at your Bibles at verse 12, he gives the command in verse 11 to work hard and mind your own business and take care of your own affairs. And then beginning of verse 12, he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So instead of so that, you could also say, for the purpose that, you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So the reason why Paul gives this command to work hard is twofold. So we might look not, uh, so that we might look good to those outside of the church, and so that we might be dependent upon no one in the church. 
To put it in the language of Paul's prayer, just a few verses before at the end of chapter 3 for the church, this is 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So the work that we are called to do, the hard work that we're called to do, the boring, mundane, sometimes hard work that we're called to do, is for the purpose that we would be dependent on no one, we would love one another in the church, and that we would have a good reputation with outsiders, love all, love those outside the church. So let me show you what I mean. Let's unpack this a little bit more, because I don't think it, it doesn't seem very apparent on the surface. So for those of us uh, working hard, loving our brothers in, in Christ inside the church, this looks like us working hard so that we're not dependent on one another. Meaning, if you are able to, Paul is commanding here that you work hard so that you can provide for yourself and your family and not be an unnecessary burden, both financially or relationally, upon the church. And also, if you work hard, then you're able to contribute in helping out to those who are genuinely in need, both in the church and in the community. I know when we're talking about hard work and jobs and all this, this is an incredibly sensitive area for some of you. And I wish that we had more time to spell out what this looks like. So I'll just say one thing. Just know that this passage has to be taken alongside of passages like Acts 2.44, where Luke records that the early church shared everything in common and freely met one another's needs. Okay, so these, there's got to be a balance in between here where we live our Christian lives. But in Thessalonians, Paul's focus is toward combating laziness. And so he wants to encourage the Christians there that a form of loving your brother and sister in the church is by working hard and not being a burden on one another. So that's one side of it. On the other side of it, we work hard and, and take care of our own affairs to love those outside the walls of the church. Now, in high school, uh, I grew up in the Harrisburg area. In high school, I was a lifeguard right over at the uh, Friendship Community Center. And so, yeah, I know, all the glamour of a lifeguard job right there. Uh, Soon after I started following Jesus, uh, in my sophomore year of high school, I was uh, eager to share uh, my newfound love for Jesus with anybody that I could. And so, um, in, uh, in, on the lifeguard stand, I sparked up a conversation one day with a guy that was probably one of my better friends there, and he, he came from a vaguely religious background and was interested in Christianity, and um, we were having a conversation about the difference between being saved by grace and being saved by baptism. And, uh, and so, as I was having this conversation, my manager comes up to me and he's like, hey, you know we can't talk on the pool deck and if you do it anymore, I'm going to have to like write you up and reprimand you. And so this created in me an existential crisis. 16-year-old me, new Christian. Because I'm like, but I got to share the gospel with this guy. I got to obey. I have to like talk to this guy about Christianity. And so I went to my, my, uh, my high school Bible teacher and I was, I called him coach. And I was like, coach, like, I have to, like, this is my chance. I can defy my manager, take a stand for the gospel, and do it even though many kids will drown in this pool. (laughs) And and he he says to me in in a a lot of wisdom, and I had a good relationship with me, so he first just laughed at me. And uh, and then he just says with a really wise voice, 
He says, Ben, your job is to do your job. (laughs) Be faithful, and God will provide ways for you to share the gospel. (laughs) And that seems so, like, duh, right? Uh, Especially to 16-year-old me. But there's so much wisdom here. I think we overlook so oftentimes. Our true Christian witness starts with a good work ethic, right? And being enjoyable co-workers and neighbors to be around. We are to maintain this good reputation. So that I, I read a commentator this week and he said, we're supposed to do this so that we don't offend others by the wrong scandal of the gospel, by ourselves not acting in line with our faith. So being an awesome Christian doesn't consist in doing big, bold things for Jesus like defying your boss and letting children drown, but it's in faithfully loving God and loving your neighbor in everything that you do. And in doing this, as you do this, you all individually and we as a church will abound more and more in love towards one another and towards our community at large. Well, some of you may be thinking at this point after uh, a sermon that's been heavy on more and more and doing things and holiness, you might say, no, this is fine and all, uh, but isn't this a bit demanding? I mean, think about it. Like, doesn't God seem like in this, in, in this passage like a dad who's never satisfied with his son or daughter who is... Uh, already worked their butt off their whole life and attained a Division I athletic scholarship, and he wants more and more from them. Doesn't more and more sound like an invitation towards being burdened and feeling guilt-ridden rather than something good? And I would say that if that's the way you understand this passage, then I think you're getting it all wrong. And so let me show you why, and this is where we'll close. This is, uh, we're going to look at verse 8. Chapter 4. He says, Therefore, whoever disregards these commands, so the past commands he's given about sexual holiness, whoever disregards these commands disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, as those here who have placed your faith in Jesus, this verse assures us that what began your Christian life in holiness is what continues your Christian life in holiness and what will complete your Christian life in holiness. Your holiness starts not with you, but with God. It starts with God giving you his Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that is the guarantee and constant enabler of our good works and our holiness. See, the good news in all of this is that God says more and more, but he also doesn't leave us to accomplish more and more on our own. See, as we strive to follow Jesus, as we strive to become more and more holy, more and more loving, God is pleased to give us more and more of his spirit to enable us to be more and more holy and more and more loving. As St. Augustine famously prayed, God, grant what you command and command what you desire. Let me say that one more time. It's kind of, Augustine kind of has this way of using words that takes you about four times to get it. God, grant what you command and command what you desire. And in this, 
is the promise of the gospel. God gives what God requires. So God clearly has spoken his holy commands to us that reflect his holy character. And we have despised him and disobeyed him and those commandments. But Jesus was given as a perfect sacrifice that a holy God required in order that us unholy people might be made right with him. And then God gives us his spirit in order that each of us might have the holiness of Christ worked into our lives each and every day as we continue to follow him. And so the good news of this more and more is that even as God requires it of us, he gives it to us. So more and more is not a burden that God places on us that we'll never be able to live up to, but it's an invitation by God's grace into a life of living under God's commands where we actually, as verse one says, by God's grace, in the power of his spirit, we actually are able to please God. And we are, fl- we are made to flourish as human beings underneath these commands, no matter how hard or strange they may seem to us. They are an invitation to truly be human. And so my encouragement to us is that as we as a church enter into another boring, ordinary week, except for maybe if you are going on vacation after this, then see ya, have fun, I guess. But as we enter the rest of us into another boring, ordinary week, of Christian living, I pray that we all would rely more and more on God's spirit, that we would lean on him and depend on him for everything that we need. But as we do that, I pray that we would strive together with God's spirit to work more and more towards holiness and love. And as we do that, I pray that we as a church this week in the boring, not flashy parts of our lives, that we would experience the joy of life by the Spirit that pleases God and produces good works. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news of your commandments. And Lord, what you tell us to do, you do not leave us to do on our own, and that in doing them by your Spirit, we actually are able to please you and to live a life in joyful obedience under your rule. Lord, we thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength, give us more and more of your spirit as a church as we strive together towards holiness and love. And may we abound more and more as Community Evangelical Free Church with these good works as you work the image of Christ and his holiness more and more into our hearts and lives. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.